Welcome back to the G Truth, one only good truth with myself. And I'm gonna continue with the artist slash band that I've been listening to over the past couple days now. The stereo the stereophonics. Now, how I started listening to them is I had watched this movie called Crash for uh, one of my classes and it was the last song and I looked it up because I really liked it and then I just went down a rabbit hole found the artist and just really really liked a lot of their stuff so some of my favorites are I want to get lost with you for me I'm wearing a YouTube shirt it sounded a whole like it sounded a lot or reminded me a whole bunch of the way that Bono of U2 the singer of U2 sounds and so I really liked it for that. Uh, have a nice night. Have a nice day, rather. is really good too. Maybe tomorrow, which was in the movie Crash, so that's really good. Dakota, I love the electric guitar. Um, same with Superman. Superman is by far one of my favorite of, uh, of of this group. I don't really have a bio or a biography to go over today. I kind of do, but not in in, in the intro. Um, it's the last topic, and if you were paying attention or watched the episode that went up on Wednesday, you would know that that is, in fact, Doug Flutie that I'm going to be talking about. But but before that, I have to talk about my prediction for the postseason for the MLB playoffs and who I think is the best running back in the NFL. So I'm going to keep it in this three-topic format. I got the... Playoffs for the MLB, that's running back in the NFL, that should be kind of short, and Doug Flutie, who I'm going to say is my bio for today, or inspirational sort of biography. Um, yeah, I'm going to start heading into it, but if you notice, I do have a black pen today instead of a blue pen, and this is actually .38, not really of any topical interest or... There's no real reason why I'm saying this. I just thought it was interesting and it just came to mind. Anyways, let's get into it. The MLB playoffs just kicked off. As I'm recording this, the Braves are about to play. Yeah, I'm recording this on Thursday at 5 o'clock. Yeah, so they're about to play. The playoffs have kicked off for... Rather, prepare for bad joke, pitched off. Yeah, bad joke. I'm, I'm not doing that again. Um, Tampa Bay Rays, they they beat the Athletics 5-1 to move on to the wild card, from the wild card round to play against the, I want to say, Do no, not Dodgers, Astros. There we go. I don't know why I'm blanking on that. And the Nationals came back against the Brewers, and that, that was such a bad game by, I'm pretty sure his name is Hater, I want to say, or Hotter. Starts with an H. And then the right fielder for the Brewers where he just took a bad hop and he completely missed it. But the Nationals move on to play against the Dodgers. And I got to say, for my prediction. I got the Dodgers winning the World Series. And I'm not the biggest MLB guy out there. I'm not the biggest baseball guy out there. There are some people that I know that 
know the stats, know the players, like nothing else. They know it by heart. They know it off the top of their head. Me, I'm not like that. I love statistics, but that's more for like basketball that I really do that. I'm a sports guy, so I, I do that for like more basketball where I can think of stats more likely off the top of my head, but not like direct stats that are on the dot. I'm, I'm starting from the point. Anyways, I have the Dodgers winning the World Series. Let me explain why. And I'm going to explain why. Not through stats or anything like that, but through trends. And in order to do that, I have to take you all the way back to the first MLB expansion. Before that, so the MLB really, um, let's say, finalized the whole MVP idea for NL MVP, AL MVP, and the criteria for both at 1931. So from 1931 for 30 years until 1961, 50% of the World Series were with two MVPs. Two MVPs. And that's out of 30 World Series. So 15 out of the 30 World Series that were played from 1931 to 1960, 50% of those had two MVPs in the World Series. That is insane. That is insane. Now, since then, only eight World Series out of 57 total World Series have had two MVPs in it. 23 have had one. And 26 have had none. That is is mind-boggling. That is crazy. But the reason why I bring that up is because from the most recent expansion that was in 1998, and that creates the now 30-team league that we know, with 15 in the NL, 15 in the AL, from then, from, 1980, from 1998 to present day, 21 World Series have been played. 14 of which have had no MVPs, 6 of which have had one, one MVP, and only one has had two MVPs, which is also crazy. Now, it is important to note that the World Series with one MVP and the ones with, or the one with two MVPs were not consecutive. So there was not, um, off the top of my head, I think it was, I want to say Detroit and uh, the Giants, where they both had MVPs. And on AL MVPs. The year before and the year after, there were no MVPs playing in the World Series. And that's what I mean by consecutive. Until these past three years with the Cubs, uh, Astros, and Red Sox. And and those uh, MVPs are Chris Bryant from the Cubs, Jose Altuve from the Astros, and Mookie, Mookie Betts from the Boston Red Sox. Now, if we look at that from for this year, we and I believe that this trend is going to continue. I believe it is because I think it's about time that now we've settled into what is going to probably be concrete um, expansion of 
only 30 teams in the MLB, it's now going to be a lot more M- um, MVPs playing in the World Series because now it's actually going to be determined by how good your team is. Now I say that, but now we have Mike Trout, who is not playing in the playoffs. And he is one of the, one of the MVP candidates, and he's pretty much going to win it. Now the on the other side, in the other league, the NL, because Mike Trout's in the AL, in the NL we have pretty much a two-man race between Cody Bellinger and Christian Yelich. However, Christian Yelich is injured, and the Brewers didn't make the play. They made the playoffs, but didn't get past the wild card. So I don't think it's a win. Cody Bellinger, either way, is still the front runner. And so Cody Bellinger is Cody Bellinger is on the you guessed it, LA Dodgers. So that's part of the reason why I think that they're going to win. And and so the last three World Series that I mentioned, uh, Chris Bryant on the Cubs, Jose Altuve on the Houston Astros, Mookie Betts on the Boston Red Sox, they all won. So yeah, I think that Cody, Bell- Cody Bellinger is going to win the NL MVP, and therefore, based off this trend, the Dodgers are going to win the whole thing. And additionally, th- th- this one I just found really really intriguing, and this follow and this following a bit more of a trend. Um, and and you don't have to take this like completely matter-of-factually, but it's more like just a trend. So take this with a grain of sand or salt or some sort of grain of rice, maybe. So I looked it up. 538 is a prediction through percentage website. It's not betting, but more like likelihood that this team wins or stuff like that. So I went back to 2017. Not... Not the Cubs one because that one was a lot weirder. But I went back to 2017 when the Dodgers and Astros played. So th- so these are like the Dodgers right here. And I went to right before the uh, divisional round started. So right after the World Series. And I looked up the percentages, the likelihood for each team winning at that point. So in 2017, number one percentage was the Cleveland Indians. Number two, LA Dodgers. Number three, the Houston Astros. And we all know in 2017, the Dodgers and Astros ended up facing off. 2018, first percentage was Astros. Second was Red Sox. Third was Dodgers. As we know, Dodgers and Red Sox faced off. 2019, it is Astros at first, Dodgers, and then Yankees. The pattern here is that the first, the, the team that's most likely to win it, the first team that I mentioned, Indians, Red Sox, Dodgers, not Indians, Astros, Astros, sorry, Indians, Astros, Astros, they didn't make it to the World Series. The second and third teams that I mentioned, Dodgers, Astros, Red Sox, Dodgers, Dodgers, Yankees made the World Series. Now, Dodgers-Yankees, not yet, but that's what I'm predicting. That, that's why I'm predicting Dodgers and Yankees. And also, also keep in mind that going back to, also going back to the Chicago Cubs-Cleveland Indians one, that World Series, going from then on to now, 
the World Series has been played by the one seed against the two seed. So that's what I'm predicting again, because I'm following the trend. Cleveland Indians, Cubs, first, second seed. Uh, what was it? Astros, Dodgers, first and second seed. Red Sox, Dodgers, first and second seed. Now this year, that means it's either Dodgers and Yankees, or it's Astros and Braves. And like I mentioned before, if we're following this 538 trend, it's going to be Dodgers and Yankees. And if we're following that trend from what I mentioned before with Cody Bellinger being the MVP, it's looking like it's going to be Dodgers and Yankees. Now, if you think that I'm completely out of it and that I don't know what I'm talking about at all and that trends are just silly and you don't believe in it, well, I'm going to say something about that. I believe that for the past two playoff series, um, for the Dodgers in the World Series, their main problem was that, aside from pitching with Clayton Kershaw and Kenley Jansen, because those players still need to play, but even then, you can still have, who, who I believe, is going to end up being a star over this um, playoffs for the Dodgers. Walker Bueller, who I found amazing last year, Game 3, against the Red Sox. He, I think it was a scoreless seven inning, innings that he pitched. Phenomenal. I think it was his first playoff game, maybe. But it was crazy. Crazy, crazy. But my real concern was late game hitting and batting because they were a home run team. And yes, they kept up with the Astros. But guess what? When it mattered the most, especially against the Red Sox, they couldn't get people on base. They couldn't. And the Astros and Red Sox were able to do that. And that's why they won along along with their pitching, because they had phenomenal pitchers for both teams. And the Dodgers do on paper, too. But they have to have that offense consistently. Because when, you, when that happens, you also wear out the other team's pitcher, and you start going through the bullpen. That's just fact. Also, I noticed this other trend. That for the Astros, and I looked this up for... Uh, close games during the regular season. The Astros, when they won it, didn't play a lot of close games in the regular season. But when they did, they scored a lot of runs. They were top three in runs in close games. However, they weren't in that many close games. So that's a good sign that they can hit and score when it matters the most. So with the Red Sox, when they won, little at-bats, they were first in runs. This year, the Dodgers, they are tremendously better than they were in years past. Years past, they had many at-bats, especially last year. They had many at-bats in close games. But they got almost, well, didn't have zero runs, but they couldn't get runs generated. This year, though, it's a lot better. Oh, there we go. It's not a complete fix, but they've had fewer at-bats. Last year they had like 700 something. This year there was like 584, I think. And there were seventh in runs in close games, which is not up to the level of the Astros and Red Sox, first and third. But it's an improvement. And they were there. They were there. They were close, even though they didn't have that. They almost won, even though they didn't have that 
trend going their way. And so I believe that now that they have it, they're, they, they're going to win it all. I think so. My only problem is that the Braves are also really good at close games. But based off all of the trends I talked about and them mostly covering up and fixing what I was so worried about, I believe that the Dodgers have learned from the past two years and that they're finally going to win. And although I would love to see a Dodgers and Astros rematch, even though you don't have David Kuchel or, um, forgetting his name, the, the Tampa Bay Rays pitcher who, uh, Morton, that's what his name is. Um, even, even though the Astros don't have that level of pitchers anymore, or that depth of pitchers anymore, I would love to see a rematch between the Dodgers and Astros where I would for sure pick the Dodgers to win. I think that the Dodgers are going to play against the Yankees and that they're going to win. I think that the trends point towards that, and I'm just following the trend. Okay, now I'm going to talk about who I believe is the best running back in the NFL. This, this, this should be relatively quick. The argument for the best NFL running back comes down to four players in mind. It comes down to Ezekiel Elliott, Alvin Kamara, uh, Saquon Barkley, and Christian McCaffrey. Now, since Saquon's injured and in rehab mode still, even though he, I just literally saw on my phone, he's coming back with a possibility of coming back to play this weekend. I think that the Giants should personally save him, make sure he's fully healthy, because if he starts getting injured like that, you lose some muscle with injury, especially with surgery, because you're just cutting away at muscle. Um, and also, you just get that area weaker. Now, he has tons of muscle, so it's going to be hard to get injured, but even then, you want to be safe. You're not going to the playoffs this year, let's be honest. So keep it safe, play it safe. Anyways, I digress. So it's Saquon injured, and that becomes Ezekiel Elliott, Alvin Kamara, Chris McCaffrey. And if we're looking at it from these first four games, it's pretty quick. It's a pretty quick analysis. Rushing yards, rushing touchdowns, rushing average. Christian McCaffrey rules them all. Receiving yards, Christian McCaffrey rules them all. From my view, Zeke and Kamara have been really inconsistent. The difference being, Kamara also has a level in the passing game and uh, more effect in the passing game than, say, Ezekiel Elliott does. And I think that Christian McCaffrey overall is just more consistent than the two of them. He did have one bad game, but Ezekiel Elliott and Alvin Kamara have had two. And I think that McCaffrey can do a lot more rushing and passing. He's pretty much carrying the team now. Even though Kyle Allen's playing great, but Christian McCaffrey has a lot to do with that. And I think he's more elusive. He can do it all. He has shocking amount of strength. Whereas I think with Zeke and Kamara, it's a lot more about, for Kamara especially, a lot more about balance, agility, elusiveness. Zeke is more, not really power running back, but a mixture of power and uh, elusiveness, but leaning a bit more to power and just running through people. So between the three, I put Christian McCaffrey at the top. But as soon as you add in Saquon Barkley, now we got a debate. I mean, 
both are incredibly consistent. They can do it all, passing game, running game. They're both strong, fast, elusive, agile. I mean, really, the, the debate comes down to who do you want on your team? And do you want that big play style of Saquon Barkley and that big play possibility of Saquon Barkley? Or do you want the steady production and consistent production of Christian McCaffrey where he can just do everything and he'll occasionally run for like 15 yards? But maybe, maybe, and I, and I, and I gotta see how Saquon comes back. If it comes down to Christian McCaffrey or Saquon Barkley, I would have to see how Saquon does with with Daniel Jones because I think that that duo can be scary if Daniel Jones plays better than he did against the Redskins while he did against the Buccaneers because then it just opens up the whole area. It opens up the whole field. Oh, it has so many possibilities for uh, Saquon to just take over. But right now, right now that is not the case. In my mind, it can... You can just imagine all the possibilities with Saquon Barkley and Daniel Jones. But that is not the case. So for right now, Cal, um, Cal, Christian McCaffrey has a throne right now. He's the best running back in the league. And as of right now, only Saquon is a threat to that throne. I will be right back. I'm going to take a quick break, and as soon as I come back, we're going to go into the story of Doug Flutie and why I believe he did not necessarily make it in the NFL as a great, quote-unquote, player. All right. This is the moment that I've been waiting for. Maybe you've been waiting for. I'm finally going to talk about Doug Flutie, and I've wanted to talk about this for a long time. A, because it intrigues me. B, it intrigues me. C, I'm at Boston College, so I feel like I kind of have to do it, um, or I'm obligated to do it, but I really want to do it. And because his story fascinates me, and also angers me, but it also kind of makes me feel at peace, weirdly enough. It's a lot of weird things. So let's start it off. Doug Flutie played for Boston College. He is most known. For two things. One thing I'm going to name right now, other things going to come later on. One, the Hail Mary against Miami. Now, it's not in a bowl game or anything like that, but it is deemed one of the greatest plays in a shootout. Look it up. Look up Doug Flutie, Hail Mary, Miami. It is insane. My dad told me to like look that up, and I looked it up, and I was like, wow. How? I actually looked at the whole highlights for the whole game. He, it was in, it's crazy. Anyways, I digress. That's one of the things he's known for. Doug Flutie. He's a smart guy. He's a talented player. He has all the intangibles you could want for him, a leader. He has a great arm. I've seen in the Hail Mary play. If you've seen it, if you haven't, go watch it right now. And then come back, please. Um, he has a great mind. He has a great zip to the ball. I noticed that a whole bunch in that game too as I was watching it. But one thing that he did not have though was size. He, he did not have that prototypical quarterback size. Coming out of college he was five foot ten and one hundred seventy five pounds. Not really what you 
that that's not the prototypical quarterback, especially during that time. Now you have players like Baker Mayfield, even though he's six foot one, still Dean Shore, you have Drew Brees, you have Kyler Murray, you have a lot more quarterbacks. So you have a lot more quarterbacks coming out of college that are a bit shorter. And people are willing to take a chance on them. But this is this is the NFL in like nineteen eighty something. So yeah, nineteen eighty five. So they're not taking a shot or taking a chance right there. And I think that out of the gate, the first thing that made Doug Flutie not able to prosper as much as I believe he could have in the NFL was that teams had didn't have the faith in him. They didn't have that faith. And he mentions it in the A Football Life video on him where it became, wow, as soon as, as, soon as he does something great, wow, that's impressive because he's short. But then as soon as he does something bad, people come right in and say, I told you so. He was not cut out for this. He's too small. Stuff like that. Became a, and I told you so, or it's a miracle that he's doing anything. And I think that's part of the reason why he didn't succeed as much in the NFL. Because of that lack of faith from teams. Not necessarily fans, but just teams and ownership. He started off in the USFL until it folded in the same year that he got in. And originally he was drafted by the LA Rams, so they still had his rights, but they didn't want him, so they traded him to the Chicago Bears for draft picks. He started one game for the Chicago Bears in the 1986 season, and he won that game. And he also started in the playoff game that they went to. He lost. They play, he played horribly through, I think, two picks, one touchdown. Not great. But from that, he really never was given another chance with from the uh, Bears. He played one more game for them as a backup and then was traded to the Patriots in the 1987 season where he started one game and also won that too. Um, 1988, he was still with the Pats. He was put into a game as a backup and won against the Colts. And then after that, he started nine straight games going six and three. So if you really think about that, when he was put in as a backup and went up against the Colts, that's really 7-3. and three. Even though it's not going to go or be counted as his win, it's still technically 6-3, six, technically six and three, but really it's 7-3. and three. However, he did not start for the last two games of the season, despite going 6-3. and three. Again, that lack of faith from ownership, sometimes coaches in this case, just seeping in and preventing him from flying high. And he was, he was the backup for Tony Eason at that time. And I don't know what happened. I don't know if Tony Eason got injured, if he just got benched. Um, but like you said, Doug Flute didn't start for the, for the last two games of the season. In the last game, they needed a win in order to make the playoffs, to clinch the playoffs in their last game. And so Tony Eason started that. However... The Patriots only scored 10 points under the hands of Tony Eason. And then they just threw in Doug Flutie and said, make something happen. First thing he does, because they're down 14 with little seconds left, I think it was against the Broncos. They played against 24-10. I think that was the final score. And he just shrugs it up, because what else can he do? And he got picked off, of course. But what else can he do? There's not that much time left, and 
He has to hope for a miracle. He has to hope for a miracle. After that season, he played for a bit more with the, with the Patriots in 1989. But after that, in 1990, he went to the CFL and started playing for British Columbia and the British Columbia Lions. Now, all that happened because no team wanted to pick him up because they feared his height. Because they didn't want to play him because of how small he was. 5'10". There was no other quarterback that was breaking the barrier. Yes, you can point to some six foot quarterbacks before him, but not five foot ten, because that's you have six feet and that's something, but then you go down to like five. And that difference, I guess, to NFL GMs and owners and some coaches is fast. However, he went to the British Columbia Lions nineteen ninety, and then he played there for a bit, he played alright, he was pretty good. Uh, there, but there is a lot of dispute between him and, uh, I'm sorry, that's incorrect. After that, he went to the Calgary St. Peters in 1992. And there, first year that he got there in 1992, he won the Grey Cup, which is basically the Canadian version, or the CFL version of the Super Bowl, or the Lombardi Trophy, and he won the Grey Cup MVP. He played there for, from 1992 to 1995. After that, he left to go to the Toronto Argonauts in 1996. After basically, he was being told after a couple playoff losses that, hey, you can't win the cold. You, you can't win it when it's freezing. So that's part of the reason why he went to Toronto, uh, to the Argonauts, to prove himself to the doubters. But then also, he had a couple of disputes with the uh, Calgary St. Peter's owner because he basically wasn't on time with his payment. It's as simple as that. You can go into more depth of it um, on a football life, but that's basically the general gist of things. Anyways, with the Toronto Argonauts in 1996, he played there for two seasons, uh, 1996 and 1997. Both of those seasons, he won the Great Cup and won the Great Cup MVP. Both of those years, back to back, as soon as he got there. And keep in mind, this is at 34 and 35 years old. So that is crazy that he's doing that. It is insane, unheard of. And before he even got there, the year before he got there, 1995, the same Toronto Argonauts team went 4 and 14. 4 and 14. Yes, they have 18 games in the CFL. But then when he got there in 1996, it was. Complete switch. They went from a 4 win team, 4 and 14, to an 11 win team. I'm pretty sure it was 11. 11 and 7. And then they won the cup. And after that, he retired from the CFL and he got an offer from the Buffalo Bills to play in the NFL. But wrapping that whole CFL area up, he is deemed as the, the greatest. CFL player ever. He has six most outstanding player awards, which is basically the MVP. So six MVPs, which is crazy. He's a three-time champ, also with the Grey Cup and winning all those MVPs with the Grey Cup too. He has 
two records. He has a record of 6,619 passing yards in a season, which is ridiculous, as well as 48 touchdowns in a season. And he's passed for 6,000 uh, yards twice in his CFL career, which has only been done once, and that is he who has done it. Anyways, he was about to completely retire. So he retired from the CFL, but he was just about to step away from football entirely. But then he got a call from the Buffalo Bills uh, in 1998, and they gave him a shot. And at this point, he is 36. He is 36 years old, and he's still trying to live out his dream to be an NFL quarterback. And he got it. But right after signing Doug Flutie in a trade, the Buffalo Bills got Rob Johnson from the Jacksonville Jaguars. And that's going to come back to bite them later on, as well as Doug Flutie and that whole Buffalo Bills franchise. And so, after literally after signing Flutie, they traded for Rob Johnson, and they gave him the starting job right away. However, on week one of that same season, 1998, Rob Johnson got injured. Doug Flutie comes in. He barely loses the game, but he played great. And... After that, Rob Johnson came back, week two, all the way to week five, and then Doug Flute, Rob Johnson has a history of getting injured, so he got injured again, pretty much. Um, and then Doug Flute came in, start, he was put in week six, and won a high scoring match, and then from there he got the start, especially with Rob Johnson and his injury stuff, and following that game into week seven, they are playing against the undefeated Jaguars. I know undefeated in Jaguars doesn't really fit, unless it's Gardner Minshew. Exactly. However, he defeated them. Not Gardner Minshew, because no one can ever beat Gardner Minshew. But he defeated the undefeated Jaguars. And so he started from week 17 to week 16. He was a pro bowler that year, and he was the NFL comeback player of the year, coming back from CFL, and having not played in the NFL for nine years years. That year he clinched the playoffs. He did lose against the Miami Dolphins. Yeah, they're not going to the playoffs anytime anytime soon. He lost 24-17. Didn't play a great game, but still. And after that year, there was some faith there. There was actually some faith. Kind of, but not really. I'll get to that. 1999 season. Doug Flutie started the whole this is where I got really upset with this whole story. He started the whole season except for the last week. He started the whole season, so 15 games. In those 15 games, he went 10-5. and five. They had clinched a playoff spot. And the coach at the time, who was it? Uh, Wade Phillips. Wade Phillips. He said, all right, all right, Doug, you played great. We're going to arrest you for this final game because we don't want you getting injured or anything like that. We're going to put in... Rob Johnson. Rob Johnson started that final game. Now, they did win that game in a blowout fashion, but for whatever, for whatever reason, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to preface this by saying that this is not Wade Phillips' fault. He has been on record by saying it is, in fact, the owner's fault, and there's a lot of factors that go into it, such as there's a lot of money tied up with uh, Rob Johnson because He's on the bench. You're paying a lot of money. You're not paying Doug Flutie that much money. So 
it's return on investment sort of. And I think also part of it was that the owner got really, um, not cocky, but very uh, ego-centric or egotistical and wanted to prove that, hey, I picked out Rob Johnson. He'll be fine. He'll do good. I didn't pick out Doug Flutie. And so pride, that, that's correct, not ego, pride. This pride got ahead of him. And so for whatever reason, whatever reason, Doug Flutie played 15 games. 10-5. Rob Johnson played the last game meaningless. Absolutely meaningless. But for whatever reason, Rob Johnson started that playoff game against the Tennessee Titans. And if you know how it goes, you know how it goes. Rob Johnson didn't play great. He played horrible. He only had 10 completions for the whole game. I think it was 10 out of 31 or something like that. I don't know. It was bad. It was bad. He was sacked, I think, six times, maybe. However, he led them onto. Somehow, he led them onto a would be game winning field goal drive. They kick the field goal, it goes in. They have a one point lead with six seconds left. I don't know why it says 16 in my notes. I'm going to correct that. Six seconds left. I remember. And then out of nowhere, Music City Miracle happened. And all Doug can do is watch from the sidelines. I whisper that. All he could do was watch from the sidelines. Yeah. The starting quarterback for the whole season. You don't play him. And that's where that lack of faith I was talking about. This is him. 36. 37 years old. 37 years old. And yes, I get it. Rob Johnson's young. You want to you prove that you're right. But when someone's winning, you got to keep with that. You got to stay with that. Wade Phillips has been on the record saying if Doug Flutie was playing that game, they're probably winning that. They're probably winning that. And, and based off how he was, off how he was playing, they could have made a, an actual run. They could have made a run. However, keep in mind, it was not Wade Phillips' decision to make. It was the owner's decision to make. So, all you Buffalo Bills fans before Tyrod Taylor Got you that playoff spot going 9-7 and seven a couple years back. Really should have been the Chargers, but the rules are the rules. That's why you had that 20-year drought, because of the Doug Flutie curse, because of your owner. So yes, he came back to fight. And then also, for whatever reason, after that, Doug Flutie was then named the backup quarterback. He was not named the starter, the backup quarterback. And Rob Johnson got the start. And Doug Flutie would only play whenever Rob Johnson got hurt or at the end of the games. And so when he was a starter, which meant that Rob Johnson got hurt, he was actually 4-1 and one in that 2000 season. And the Bills under Rob Johnson, when he was starting, were 4-7. and seven. I mean, the signs should have been clear. Just keep... Doug Flutie, get rid of Rob Johnson. Throw him away. I'm sorry, that's me. Trade him away for draft picks. That's nice here. And after that 2000 season, because they didn't really win anything, again, Doug Flutie was cut. 
and the Bills kept Rob Johnson, who never panned out to anything, kept on having an injury history, never panned out to anything much in the NFL. So Doug Lee was cut. He was picked up by the Chargers at 39 years old. At that point, he wasn't really great anymore. He didn't really fit in with the Chargers. Uh, he did start every game in the 2001 season, though. I think they won five games. I think, I think they went five and 11. But the whole point of that was he became a mentor for Drew Brees while he was there. And then eventually he left to go to the Patriots. And he eventually retired while being a Patriot. And this is the second big, I would maybe call this iconic, but this is the second iconic moment for Doug Flutie after, of course, the Hail Mary play. It is in his final game with the Patriots in the regular season, he drop-kicked the football for an extra point. And that was the first time that that had been done in an NFL game since 1941. So, going out with a bang. That, that, that's the Doug Flutie way. But overall, I think that had the Bears really kind of give, given him a chance, the Patriots, I don't really blame them because they had their own system going. Um, we know they weren't really great. I still would have loved to see him with the Patriots. Um, I believe that if he had had teams that consistently had faith in him, especially the Bills, even though that was later in, in his career. And I'm talking about the Bears, too, where they just gave up on him after one playoff game and he was young, I think that Bills and Bears, if they just had a bit more faith in him and trust him, especially upper management, trusted him and just let their pride go, I think that he could have really done something in the NFL. I mean, he is deemed as the greatest CFL player of all time, and that is great. But I think that at the same time, he could have done something great in the NFL. But if you look back at his impact, it is tremendous. He paved the way, opened the doors for quarterbacks like Kyler Murray, Baker Mayfield, shorter quarterbacks, and one that he eventually mentored, Drew Brees. He opened the door for everyone who may be undersized and a prototypical, especially in sports. Um, he really opened the doors for, like I said, Drew Brees, Kyler Murray, uh, Baker Mayfield, and all the other small guys out there in any sports. Or It's really more of a metaphorical sort of general statement in that way. And so maybe, maybe, even though he did not have the faith or the trust that I wanted owners and GMs and coaches to have in him, Thing maybe, looking back at it, I think maybe it was for the best because now he paved a way for a new generation of quarterbacks. Anyways, that is my whole topic on Doug Flutie, and that pretty much wraps us up with Doug Flutie, MLB, best, best running back in the NFL. Honestly, I feel like since, since I've been wanting to do all through these topics for quite some time. I've been wanting to talk about the MLB postseason. I didn't bring my cards, but I literally went through all the way from 1931 all the way to now. 
uh, about how all the World Series, um, uh, all the results from it, winners, losers, whether there was an MVP on that team or not, went through the whole history, had to learn about the whole history of the MLB, the expansions, uh, the one in 1961, 1931, where they actually got, you know, a standardized uh, MVP for both uh, leagues, stuff like that. And I had to learn about the gap, I think it was 1994, where there was no World Series because there was a player strike. Very confusing, but I did all that. And I think that for me, going through this is not relieving, but it just feels good to talk about it in the planned out, laid out way. And that's not to say that I don't plan out my other episodes, but this one just feels great to talk about because it's something I've been wanting to do for a long time. It's something that's close to me, something I've worked really, really hard on for several weeks for the MLB one. I've had in mind for over a month now, and it just feels great to just put it on paper and speak it. And I can honestly say, and I'll truly know when I put this up, that I feel great about this episode and that I think that this is one of my best ones. Even though it may be running long on time, I think it's definitely worth it. So I'm going to close my, my notes. And I just want to say, check out the Stereophonics. Definitely look into the story of Doug Flutie. Take some inspiration from it. Always look out for the little guy. Thanks for listening to the G-Truth. Be sure to, if you got to this point at least, subscribe, like, you know the drill. You know, share with all your friends, share with family, all that stuff. You know the drill. Thank you for listening. Peace out.